Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 54 for February 28, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. The merger of the centrist parties that occurred last week and the attorney general's ruling could be two of the biggest developments in Israeli politics in many years. That was David Mikofsky, an expert on Israeli politics who previewed the issues, parties, and personalities at play in the campaign for Israel's April 9 parliamentary elections. David explained how major new developments may be shifting votes in a country where the left and right split on the disposition of the West Bank rather than tax rates. We'll hear David's full analysis, recorded by Skype just before Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was formally charged with three counts of corruption. After this. This is Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. I'm speaking today with David Mikofsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations. David served as an advisor to the State Department on Israeli-Palestinian negotiations during the Obama administration, and he's an adjunct professor in Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University. David, welcome back to Near East PolicyCast. Delighted, Scott. So Israel holds national elections for parliament on April 9. You've recently published analysis of the race, describing it as a, quote, battle of the Benjamins and as a duel of narratives. Can you give us a 30,000-foot view of the parties, their leaders, and how they're approaching the elections? So basically, you have two leading figures in this election. One is the incumbent, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's running for his fifth term. And he represents the right of center. And the centrist parties is led by a former IDF, Israel Defense Forces, chief of staff, like what we'd call chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Benny Gantz. The, the nature of Israeli politics is when you say right, center, left, it's not about high taxes or low taxes, but it's about your position on the final disposition of the West Bank. Those on the right, led by the prime minister, are skeptical of the idea of a Palestinian state, even though he once endorsed it, and believe that Israel, such a state would be a threat to Israel on a security basis. His, his coalition parties, though, include people who are against that for issues of biblical patrimony. And at the center, those forces, Gantz, are, might be skeptical that you can get a grand deal now with the Palestinians, but believe that the current deep-seated impasse needs to be broken, even with incremental ideas. So that's kind of the access point of Israel. It's not about high taxes, low taxes, like in our country. But the access point since 67, uh, the 1967 war has been, what do you do with the West Bank? It's kind of Israel's Cold War from within. And um, the Likud has basically dominated Israel for the last 27 years. Uh, but it has lost three elections in that period. Two of them were to former uh, military chiefs of staff, Rabin, 92, Barak, and 99. A third time it lost was also a sympathy to another military person, Ariel Sharon, who was in a coma and uh, had a, a you know, successor. But basically what's novel about this election is that you have three former military chiefs of staff who are trying to neutralize the advantage 
that uh, Netanyahu leading what's called the Likud party or the unity party has been able to garner all these years as someone who's the guardian of Israel's security. And so for them, this is an, an election not about security per se, but it's a referendum on Netanyahu's leadership given some of the corruption scandals that have been brewing. Well, right. If, if the broader background is uh, about the left-center-right divide on the Palestinian issue, and particularly the West Bank, the elephant in the room for this particular election seems to be the potential for Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of the Likud party, to be indicted on several corruption charges by his own attorney general in the days or weeks to come. If it happens, it's likely to happen before the election, right? So how how has the potential indictment of the prime minister shaped the campaign? It's huge. I mean, we will know really soon, like in the coming days, because there's going to be a reticence for uh, the attorney general is not going to want to intercede, uh, intercede as you get closer to the election. So the betting is that it will happen either at the end of this week or the or next week, uh, not beyond that. Uh, and I should I, let, let me jump in and, and just note for our listeners that we're recording this conversation on uh, Tuesday, February 26th, uh, likely a day or two ahead of uh, the time when you're listening. So, yeah, so this is a huge thing. I would I would go so far, Scott, is to say that the merger of the centrist parties that occurred last week around circa whatever it is, February 22nd and um, the Mandelblit, the attorney general's ruling which is expected, you know, around the, um, you know, start of March, uh, end of February, start of March, could be two of the biggest developments in Israeli politics in many years. So one of one of the two have already happened, the merger, and now we'll see if part two is it's, it would be unprecedented for a sitting prime minister to be indicted. There was a former prime minister who had to quit over the over corruption allegations, but it never got to the indictment phase. I should say that the indictment here is not a finalized indictment. It's called pending a hearing because the prime minister is entitled to a hearing before an indictment is finalized. But it would be a huge deal. And uh, and the question is, how many votes would it shift from that right block of parties to that center block of parties? That's kind of the $64,000 question. Well, and and before we turn to the uh, it's it's calling itself the blue and white alliance, uh, if we can just stay on uh, the potential charges, does Netanyahu face any threat to his leadership within the Likud, either before or after the elections? Should his preliminary indictment be public? It's an interesting question. The Likud is is basically known for its loyalty to its leader, and it has never pushed any leader out in the history seventy years of Israel. Uh, Menachem Begin, the founder of the precursor of Likud called the Chayrut Party, I think he ran eight times. There's a certain loyalty to the leader that is not blind, but is it tends to give the leader the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a guy to kind of be on, you know, keep your antenna out for named Gidon Saar, who's a young, uh, younger version uh, of Netanyahu in the sense that he's viewed to be smart and and very um very smooth. He's out, but I must say he's considered, you know, no one has questioned his his honesty. And and, and uh, Netanyahu thinks, sees him somewhat as a rival and tried to kind of push him down in the primaries. But uh, it is it is interesting that the same Likud public that has been so loyal to Netanyahu 
I think sees Gidon Saar as an insurance policy. What if he mm. goes? Who's waiting in the wings? So he's actually, he took a break from Israeli politics. He's, he's returning and he ran third in the primaries and he got a high position for a guy who had taken a break. And uh, but uh, and there, there's in the Netanyahu circles, there's nervousness that if he is somehow incapable of putting together a, a government that Gantz, I mean, that Saar will will somehow step in it uh, without complicating things too much. The person who kind of mandates the, the configuration of a government is Israel's ceremonial president, not its powerful prime minister. His name is Rivlin, uh, Ruby Rivlin. And him and Netanyahu have a lot of um, have had a lot of friction. So the Netanyahu nightmare scenario is that Rivlin is going to say, "Sorry, Bibi, you you know there, there's 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 this is too complicated, and I'm just ask Gidon Sar to do it." So I think um, he's kind of waiting in the wings, but I don't see Netanyahu giving up the reins. Certainly, if it's up to him, anytime soon. Okay, so the blue and white alliance between Benny Gantz's new resilience faction and Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, it's far from the first attempt to challenge the Likud party with an opposition fusion. But previous attempts to form center fusion parties uh, to oppose the Likud in the Netanyahu era have tended to founder as some members defect back to their original parties on the right and the remaining party then drifts to the left. Why is blue and white potentially different? It's a great question. And, you know, we, it might be another example of something that starts with a sizzle and ends with a fizzle. <laughs> uh, we don't know for sure uh, if they will be successful in a long time, uh, in the long term. Yes, there's a whole record of these centrist parties coming and going. But what is interesting here is the combination of three former uh, military chiefs of staff, each one of whom was popular. And in general, Israel, because of the security threats all around its borders, gives the army a certain halo, I would say. Mm. And so someone who emerges from that, the politicians make sure they don't come out of the system too quickly, is like a four-year cooling off period because precisely of this halo that they fear that they'll be competitors. But the, um, you know, these, these three could, um, you know, the question is, could they really cement the support and the combination with that and, and the corruption surrounding Netanyahu with the Mandelblit findings will know for sure. So we have to keep saying it's an allegation. It's nothing confirmed. But uh, those combinations could cement for a while this coalition. You mentioned Lapid. Lapid is the one of the four guys who is not a general, mm -hmm. but he's a very disciplined campaigner. He's got a, an uncanny ability to under kind of get at the nub of what Israelis are concerned about. He, he, does, ex, he does very well with kind of Israel's middle class uh, that's emerging, the wider Tel Aviv area, where it's a very westernized uh, culture, and uh, he speaks to them very well. And so the question is, will this uh, amalgam of these four, three chiefs of staff and uh, former chiefs of staff and Lapid, you know, really serve as a very effective counterweight. Its staying power, as you suggest, however, is very much subject to proof. Could it go the way of some of these other centrist parties? What is interesting about Lapid is that his centrist party is now in its third, uh, you know, cycle, election cycle. He ran in 2013 and 2015. Mm -hmm. And part of his staying power, though, is that he, 
he kind of owns the party and uh, he doesn't really face the internal challenges. As a matter of fact, he handpicked his own list of very prominent academics and other people who are in Israeli public life that people think are very clean and they don't need to form a base of supporters and get their hands dirty in a way that um, would uh, kind of create tumult uh, in these primary systems like you have in the Likud, for example. So mm. Lapid has had staying powers as centrist party, but your question is the right one because there's been too many of these things that are like just meteors and then they just kind of fizzle out. So. We'll have to see. There's a lot of excitement here that this is like an all-star cast coming together. But, you know, just at the very beginning, it, and it could be a very long trajectory. It could be a short trajectory. We don't know yet. Well, while that's going on, how has Netanyahu responded to the growing centrist coalition that's forming to his political left? Well, if the, if the blue and white argument is that, you know, we want to be a uniter and not a divider, and they charge Netanyahu, uh, with kind of um, pitting Israeli groups against each other. By the way, it's a, a charge that's made in our own country, you know, about the current administration. So there's some echoes here. I think Trump and, and Netanyahu are different in, in many ways, but they, you know, there's some similarities. And uh, but so if they're running this race on the basis of this is a referendum on Netanyahu's leadership. You know, on being a, a divider, not a uniter, the corruption issues. Netanyahu is running a more classic campaign saying there's a secret agenda of these centrists. And if you're not right, you're left and left in the Israeli context is becoming a taboo phrase of almost being unpatriotic. Uh, it's not a coincidence, therefore, that his opponents have used the term blue and white, which are the colors of the Israeli flag, to reinforce the theme of patriotism. And again, the three chiefs of staff part. But Netanyahu is saying, look, it's very simple. Is the access points of Israeli politics in 1967 remain. Where are you on the Palestinian issue? And these centrists, they really just want to give up land. And by giving up land, you're making Israel more vulnerable and not more secure. So he's going to run that campaign that they are hiding an agenda under the divider, not a uniter kind of narrative. And he wants to run a more classic campaign. The question is, how well is this going to work against three former uh, military chiefs of staff, including Yalon, who was his own defense minister in the Likud? Well, one word that hasn't come up yet in our conversation is labor. Is the Labor Party and the political tradition that it represents in Israeli politics still a meaningful force? Or has the Israeli public become so solidly center-right that the only real competition is between the right and the center, not the left? Yeah, no, that's, it's again, a great question. Yes, I mean, the, the Gutman Institute of the Israel Democracy Institute came out with a poll saying that 62, 63% of Israeli Jews that are 80% of the country, that that's 63% of them self-identify as, as being the right. Now, it's a spectrum. It could be a light right. It could be a, you know, a, a middle right. It could be a hard right. But you're right. I mean, basically, the second intifada of the Palestinian uprising of 2000, 2004, really decimated the Israeli peace camp. And um, and so it's the, the, the left has become like almost an endangered species uh, in Israel. So the center is where it's at. And, and the center is bringing in people from the right and, and stressing its military 
credentials. So labor has been hurt that way. Also, labor, frankly, has had two other strikes going against it, which is at the very moment the Israeli public has turned away from the left, instead of looking to bring in military people, it became more a niche party mm. of social activists. Again, good ones, I would argue. But in the Israeli public, they tend to vote on security. So if you don't have generals or people with, with strong security credentials, you're going to get killed. And they and they just, uh, you know, they, they didn't change. They were too many social activists. And by becoming a niche party, it, they, their appeal is just is, is not to the broader public. And uh, so at the last minute, they just added a general right the day before the deadline. But it, 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 their, their position is hurt. I think they've also been hurt by something that happened. I know to, to our listeners will sound like like so many generations ago. It will sound crazy, but it's but it has very it has a lot of potency. The Labor Party was the Mayflower Party of Israel. They are the ones who brought they dominated Israel for the first 29 years of its existence from 48 to 77. And they, um, you know, they they really were the ones who helped bring all the immigrants over. But the flip side of that is a lot of the, the Jews from Middle Eastern countries were put in like transit camps on Israel's borders in very rough conditions. They a lot of them came from middle class, you know, homes uh, in the Middle East, but they um, were suddenly downgraded, so to speak. Uh, the country was broke. A lot, uh, one percent of its populace was killed. That's like over three and a quarter million Americans in the forty-eight War of Independence, and they didn't have any money. They just brought people and they they threw them in tents on Israel's borders, far away from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And uh, the grandchildren of these people, instead of thanking the Labor Party for bringing them, have said, "You try to keep my grandparents down." or my parents down, you cut off their side curls. They were religious, but you wanted the new Jew who's secular. And so there's a there's this lingering grudge that labor has never been able to shake. Hmm. And that combined with the niche nature of the social activists and the turn away of the Israeli public from the peace camp and the second intifada, Taken together, it's been a devastating blow. If they get eight seats out of 120, that'll be, I think, a good turnout for them. Maybe they get nine, but it's also possible they can get five or, you know, five or six. Hmm. So with with all of this background, then what should Americans be watching for in the Israeli elections, both in the campaign and then when it comes to the ninth and the 10th, as we're learning the results of the election? What are the key things, the key issues that are at stake for American policy uh, that are of interest to our American audience? Right. I, I mean, look, the, uh, you know, the Trump administration says it wants to put forward its peace plan. It has announced it will not do so before the Israeli election, but it could do so immediately afterwards. And if Netanyahu was able to eke out a victory, and again, the word victory has to be carefully defined here. It's mm-hmm. There's a question of which party is ahead in, in raw numbers, the horse race between Gantz and Netanyahu, essentially. And right now, Gantz is ahead, 36 to 31. It's, it's been electrifying his, his appeal. But the goal is to get 61 seats out of the 120-member Knesset, you know, the, the most simple majority. No party in Israel's history has ever kind of gotten 61 on its own, and no one's expecting any party to come close to that today. So Netanyahu has as an advantage on the satellite parties because of the support of the ultra-Orthodox 
uh, he's able to get closer to 61. Now, right now, it's a, it's a rough parody. And will the Mandelblit corruption charges actually move the needle to, to you know, uh, away from that some of these soft right votes will peel away? That's a big question. So when you look at, you know, if you're an American, you know, listener wondering what's going on April 9th, don't just look at the party horse race. Mm. Look at the blocks in total, the right block and the center block. And now it looks like they're in rough parity. What are some of the variables that could shift this? A, the Mandelblit uh, corruption announcement that could be any day now. Second, uh, could Gaza flare up? And if it flares up, who does that cut for? Is do people blame Netanyahu that it, that it flares up, that that the rockets coming down in Israeli cities in southern Israel, like Beersheba and Ashkelon and places like that, or do they see this as a sign that Hamas is, you know, being being that Hamas is viewed as implacably hostile, that we just gotta don't we gotta freeze the status quo, make no changes to to break the impasse, so to speak. So Gaza is going to be a, an, an issue here, too. And then the question of the, you know, the, the immediate aftermath of the election as an American, I expect that the, you know, it's very possible that the Trump administration, either during the coalition formation process or immediately when the government is formed, is going to drop its, its uh, you know, forward, its, its peace initiative. There are some indications that Netanyahu, who who usually finds the right very, you know, that that's his natural environment. And when he's certainly, if he's feeling desperate and that the world is closing in on him with the Mandelblit thing that, you know, people say, hey, he's losing altitude in a year, there'll be another election and he'll be gone, uh, that the right will be more loyal. So some would say, Bibi's going to do what he did in this, you know, this government from 2015 to 2019, where we are now. He'll go with the right because the right is dependable. But he's got a lot of friction points with some of the leaders on the right. I won't bore people with all the details. The question is, is does Netanyahu go to Trump? They're meeting on, on March 24th to March 26th, somewhere in that zone in, at the White House. Does he say, hey, Donald, you know, that peace plan, why don't you put it forward right after the election? Maybe this will open up political space for me to reach out to some of these centrist parties to be junior members of my coalition. Mm-hmm. And peace is the avenue, the vehicle, the instrument to, to get them in the door. And uh, will it lead people to kind of marginalize whatever Mandelblit comes out with? So this, is, this will be interesting in how the Trump peace plan um, will figure in to the aftermath of this election. Will it be on April 10th? I can't say. I mean, it could be you have Ramadan, you have Passover at the end of April, Ramadan and at the end of May, at the start of May, May 4th or May 5th, I believe, uh, for a month. It takes around six weeks, maybe it could, to put together the new government. So could it happen in between April 10th and June 1st? We'll see, or right after that. But does he use the peace issue as a way of, of broadening his own space in the aftermath? I think that's a fascinating thing to look for as going forward, uh, the role of the Trump peace plan. Now, is it short-lived? Does Abbas say no? You know, we don't know yet. We think Netanyahu will say in principle he likes it, but he has to negotiate details, but he'll meet Abbas any place, any time and put the onus 
put the ball squarely in, in, in Abbas's court. Trump administration will try to is starting to court Arab countries to try to to uh, persuade Abbas not to say no. Uh, so we'll have to see. There are a lot of variables here. Well, it sounds like there's going to be uh, likely to be significant elections with uh, profound impacts for American policy. So thank you for speaking with us. We've we've been speaking today with uh, David Mikofsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations. You can follow David on Twitter at, at David Mikofsky. That's David, M-A-K-O-V-S-K-Y. David, thank you for joining us today. Delighted to be with you. Just tell your, your listeners that this could be get a little turbulent between now and April 9th. So put the trade tables in the upright <laughs> positions and fasten the seatbelts. It's going to be a ride as, as each side thinks that they have a lot at stake with this election. I expect this to be you know, very hotly contested. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East PolicyCast. Cast.